1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Professor John Shovlin. Professor Shovlin is Professor of History at New York University, and today we are discussing his newest book, Trading with the Enemy, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Shovlin.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Professor, what is the thesis of your book? The book
0: tries to understand a pattern of interaction between France and Britain in the 18th century. Uh, This is a period that uh, has been described as a second hundred years war. Uh, It's a period generally of a great deal of conflict uh, and repeated resort to war between the two nations. Um, I, I am interested in a less noticed pattern uh, in the relationship, a series of intermittent efforts on the part of officials in both nations uh, to change the pattern of the relationship, uh, to push it in a more peaceful direction, uh, still a rivalrous direction, uh, but one that in, in which the rivalry is focused on uh, on commerce uh, rather than on uh, military conflict. Uh, so. The question that the book tries to answer is: What is behind this pattern? Uh, what explains this um, these these intermittent, uh, recurrent efforts across the eighteenth century to transform the, the character of the relationship between the two states? And what, what I argue, I mean, that the essential thesis of the book is that uh, it, it is it is financial blowback from war that drives these efforts. So it, this is a period when France and Britain both uh, essentially deficit finance their wars. Uh, the costs of war are, uh, are, are mostly or largely borrowed uh, so that each war leaves in its wake a mountain of public debt, uh, permanently higher taxation, uh, higher interest rates, in many cases and the concern of the officials who sponsor these efforts to, um, to reach a different, to reach an accommodation with the cross-channel enemy. The concern of these officials is that these financial blowbacks from war uh, w- will actually strangle the commerce that these wars were to some degree or other uh, fought to secure or to advantage. So. Uh, th- this, is, this, is the, this is the driving impulse behind these repeated efforts. That, that really is the fundamental claim of the
1: book. That's Dr. Cattillo, you tell us, in your preface, you state that there are features of the present which parallel those of the 18th century. What would those be exactly?
0: I, I think that we may be heading into a moment that looks uh, more like the 18th century, than much of the last 70 years have done. Uh, if we look at the international order since World War II, so far as uh, competition between states over uh, trade, investment, uh, resources is concerned, that that um, the, that competition has been effectively contained by a an international regime that uh, essentially provides protection for foreign trade and investment uh, through an internationally agreed set of mechanisms, uh, culminating in the World Trade Organization, uh, beginning with uh, with GATT uh, and uh, the Bretton Woods uh, agreements. We have we we are uh, I think unused to the idea. That competition between states for uh, for trade, uh, for for investment, for resources, can lead to um, to a great deal of conflict. That is, to to, to, to geopolitical conflict as opposed to geoeconomic conflict. Um, I I think what the what the 18th century teaches us, uh, and the way that it may parallel, if not our present, then our 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 coming future, is that. When states seek to protect their trade and investment abroad, not under a an agreed framework, uh, but rather um, competitively, each state or or, or blocks of states uh, seeking to protect their commerce uh, individually and competitively, then the scope there's a there's a scope for an enormous amount of conflict, and that's the kind of conflict we see in the 18th century. And it may be the kind of conflict towards which we are moving if we abandon the current framework. Uh, and there there do seem to be indicators of at least a great deal of, of, of dissatisfaction with that framework in recent years. And here I'm thinking about Brexit. I'm thinking about uh, the rise of U.S. suspicion and hostility towards China and vice versa. I'm thinking about the breaking out of of maritime disputes in the South China Sea, the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, the Arctic, and other parts of the world. The the, the protection regime for global trade and investment that we've lived under and under which capitalism has enormously uh, expanded over the last 70 years appears to be fraying, if not breaking down. And the the place we could be moving towards – is going to look a lot more like the 18th century than it's going to look like the last 70 years.
1: Why do you put states and companies rather than trade as such at the center of your story?
0: In in the 18th century, uh, although merchants suffered mightily uh, in certain respects uh, from the repeated wars of the period, they, they found ways to adapt. Um, for example, French merchants, when they could no longer take to the high seas because of British naval blockades, tended to resort to neutral carriers. So, so some trade could be continued under neutral, under neutral flags and by other, uh, by other means. Uh, merchants could also find um, profit opportunities in war, um, in military contracting, for example, uh, which was a, a source of great wealth for many British merchants in the 18th century. States and companies, on the other hand, um, couldn't avoid the costs of war. Um, they they ended up, in the case of states, bearing always enormous new debts uh, at the ends of at the end of wars. Um, companies stood to have their profits eroded um, because they had to mount such heavy protection costs uh, for, for their trade when they were engaged in conflict, and of course uh, stood uh, stood in risk of bankruptcy. Um, if they couldn't balance those costs against their profits. So I I think it's states and companies more even than merchants who bear the the costs of war and who find those costs unavoidable in the 18th century. And it's therefore states and companies uh, where we see the most creative efforts to imagine a world that would function differently and to engage in initiatives to transform the nature of international competition between France and Britain.
1: How does the broader history of political economy figure in your book?
0: The book is, is centrally engaged with the broader history of political economy in the 18th century. It, it is an effort to bring together three historiographies that have developed uh, mostly separately. Uh, the history of international relations the history of the fiscal military state, uh, and the history of political economy in the 18th century. Where the book engages with 18th century political economy, uh, it, 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 it is an effort to show uh, – it, it, it's an effort, A, to, um, to suggest that the idea that, li- that a liberal political economy had become dominant in this period – uh, and was fundamentally shaping the action of states. Uh, that that's a proposition that we need to treat uh, with some uh, with some suspicion. Um, wh- what I see, what what I investigate in the book, uh, are are the political economic attitudes of uh, the officials who um, who managed competition between France and Britain in this in this period. Um, and uh, while free trade for example, was an absolutely central idea for these officials. And while they saw in free trade a central tool in managing competition between uh, between the two states, the two empires, their understanding of free trade was not a liberal one. Um, For want of a better way to put it, one of the things that's emerged from the book is that there is a very rich uh, mercantilist uh, vision of free trade Operating in this period, and that it is central to the management of international competition, and is regarded as a key instrument in in trying to pacify the relationship between France and Britain um, across the whole 18th
1: century. Why do you not believe that mercantilism mercantilism per se was uh, aggressive and bellicose?
0: It it's, it sounds aggressive and bellicose because um, because of the character of the language, uh, the constant comparisons between trade and, and war uh, in this period. But mercantilists very rarely actually advocated war as a means to wealth uh, in this period, and, and for very obvious reasons. Um, the fact that um, the costs of war were so high in this period, that the advantages to trade would, be have, would have to be very great indeed, for them to balance uh, the, the 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 costs of winning those advantages uh, in war. In in fact, Mercantilists very rarely uh, endorsed war as a as a as a means to wealth in this period. the the, the truth is that that they they saw commerce rather as a substitute for war, um, and this is why you see this constant comparison uh, between between war and trade. Um, by engaging in commercial competition, peaceful commercial competition, they hoped uh, states might uh, achieve a balance of power. Uh, they might aggrandize themselves, and without the risks and the costs of actual uh, of actual military conflict, which they generally uh, they generally sought to avoid. One of the central arguments of the book is that there is a peace project that is embedded in 18th century mercantilism. Um, that that all of these efforts across the 18th century to reach a more accommodating relationship between France and Britain, to divert their rivalry from geopolitical conflict or geopolitical rivalry into what we might see as geoeconomic rivalry, uh, that all of these are driven by um, a, a, a broadly mercantilist Perspective. So far from mercantilism being simply a driver of conflict in this period, and I do accept that to a degree it is a driver of conflict, there's another dimension to it, um, and and that dimension, in that dimension, I see mercantilism as 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 forwarding a kind of peace plan or uh, a, a an an, al- an alternative form of uh, competition between these great powers that will be less focused on uh, military conflict and more more focused on trade.
1: Why for you, as opposed to, say, Brendan Sims, was, quote, the balance of power inseparable from the balance of wealth, unquote? The, the,
0: uh, I, I think Sims tends to uh, produce a rather artificial distinction between um British strategic interests in Europe and British strategic interests in 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 trade or in the colonies um, th- these are two realms that can't be separated because the resources necessary to prosecute conflicts in Europe to subsidize al- allies or to pay for um, armies and navies the resource necessary to do that were generated from international from international commerce so um I, I don't think the two can be separated Um, What what I see in the officials I look closely at is an understanding that a a balance of wealth or a balance of commercial potential underpins the balance of power. Um, And there's a a constant attention to to maintaining that balance and a constant worry that the, the other great commercial state, be it France or Britain, uh, is going to gain uh, a, a, an advantage in in trade that will be that will be permanent, or will that will tend to ramify and grow over time, uh, producing a an, Im, an imbalance of power that uh, will put the rival state in a position where it's impossible to catch up. Um, I, I stressed a moment ago that uh, mercantilists generally didn't see uh, uh, war as an effective solution, um, uh, or as an effective strategy uh, for uh, for uh, pursuing wealth. The the one situation in which mercantilists endorsed war was where uh, war was the only way to prevent a a permanent uh, or potentially permanent imbalance uh, in commercial power, which would leave their own nation uh, in, in essentially at the p- p- permanently uh, uh, under threat from the other uh, from the other competing power. Um, so th- those are the situations uh, where Mercantilists can endorse uh, war, but it's essentially a, a defensive uh, war or a preventative war that's in question.
1: Can you expand on your statement that France and Great Britain, quote? What a commercial Cold War in the century after 1688.
0: Unquote. Um, between the Glorious Revolution in 1688 and um, the the end of the 18th century, uh, the, the French and the British subjected uh, trade from one another to prohibitions, to very high duties, intended both to foster competing industries. Uh, at home, but also to disadvantage and ruin the trade of the rival. Uh, this was the this was the normal uh, situation in, in in French and British trade in this period, uh, which is why I, I describe it as a as a as a commercial Cold War. Um, one of the principal themes of the book is looking at a series of moments between the 17 teens and the 1780s when officials on both sides seek to transform that situation, uh, to end that commercial Cold War, uh, to reopen trade, a freer trade uh, between the two countries. Um, And the the two sort of peaks of this being in 1713, when they actually sign a commercial treaty between the two two, uh, countries intended to um, undo some of the effects of the commercial Cold War since the Glorious Revolution. Um, That treaty uh, signed between the two sovereigns was essentially upended by the House of Commons. Um, And then uh, later in 1786, with the so-called Eden Renewal Treaty, when um, the two nations did actually agree to uh, reopen a significant degree of uh, relatively open trade um, between the two. Um, And and for for me, at that moment, is is a kind of culminating one uh, for some of the trends that I uh, tried to track in the book.
1: Why were the Tories under Harley and St. anti-Dutch and more inclined to a rapprochement with France?
0: Because they saw the Dutch as a much greater threat to Britain's commerce than the French. Um, the Tories, unlike the Whigs, uh, were principally focused on uh, the, the advantages of the carrying trade uh, and the advantages of the commercial services um, offered by the City of London. Um, so insurance, warehousing, um, the re-export business. Um, th- those were economic um, sectors in which the Dutch were extremely competitive and extremely powerful. So um, the, the, tories, um, the Tories saw the Dutch as the real threat to Britain's uh, future um, prosperity and power. Um, they didn't take the French all that seriously as a threat because um, France, for example, um, didn't have a major merchant marine in this period. Um, Whigs, on the other hand, who tended to look to manufacturing as the, um, the key strategic sector, uh, didn't see the Dutch as a major competitor in the long run. Um, but saw the French as saw the enormous strides the French had made in manufacturing since the days of Jean Baptiste Colbert uh, in the 1660s, 70s, and 80s, um, and worried that France uh, had the potential to be uh, a manufacturing great power, uh, and, and therefore were much more focused on um, keeping French goods out of Britain, using French excuse me using using British trade policy uh, to prevent the the further expansion of, um, of French manufacturing. So a, a real split between Tories and Whigs in where they saw the fundamental threat coming from and why.
1: Why did uh, a similar type of trade treaty not become practical politics for another 70 years or so?
0: Um, Partly because um, the Whigs, who were very opposed to the commercial treaty of 1713, um, acquired um, a a semi-permanent hold on power. With the Hanoverian succession, um, and push the Tories into the position of being more or less prescribed at court and uh, and pushed to the back benches of Parliament uh, for several decades. I mean, it's not until George I ascends the throne in 1760 that we see uh, a reintegration uh, of the Tories. So it's partly a question of, of Whig dominance. There are efforts um, first in the early to mid-1750s, that is right after the War of Austrian Succession. There are efforts to uh, take steps towards uh, freeing of Franco-British trade again, and then um, again more more ambitiously in 1772 as part of a broader initiative in which the French Foreign Minister, the Duc de Guillaume, seeks a, uh, a permanent accommodation with the British in India and at the same time pursues a commercial treaty modeled closely. On that of 1713 uh, with Britain, the this, the the 1770 the, the accord in the early 1770s, um, it, it actually received some um, favourable response uh, from from certain members of the British cabinet. Uh, the the uh, the Southern Secretary, uh, for example, is quite open to it at first, and George the uh, Third is is um, is quite uh, interested, um, but the, the 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 administration of Lord North um, is facing an opposition that is um, extremely paranoid about French gains, and in that kind of political climate, um, it proves um, it proves very difficult, uh, uh, and in in the end, too risky uh, for the government to pursue that strategy. We see we see a real change in attitude. Uh, by the mid-1780s when a trade treaty is actually signed um, because uh, because the, the loss of America in 1783 um, changes British attitudes. There's real uncertainty about what the implications of the loss of America will be uh, for British trade and manufacturing. There is a concern to um, to recover markets in Europe to compensate for the potential that American markets are going to be lost in a more open competition with other European states, Um, a a weakened and more vulnerable Britain um, is much more open to the prospect of some kind of accommodation with the old enemy, the French. And the the terms that uh, the French offer uh, in the new trade treaty that's eventually uh, negotiated in 1786 are, are quite attractive. And they're attractive because they're intended to become the basis for a more permanent um, pacification of the Franco-British relationship, um, and that that's something which uh, appears attractive to William Pitt the Younger uh, in 1785-1786, at a moment where um, Britain has uh, no allies, where it has an enormous public debt, and where there is some uncertainty about um, the um, the the future for British um, Trade and manufacturing.
1: In both countries, there is a uh, species of a anti-hegemonic discourse. In the case of uh, the UK, um, there is this Whig weak, or Whig-aligned discourse about French ambitions for a universal monarchy, and in the case of uh, France, something which I was not particularly familiar with, there is this discourse about British ambitions for a um, universal uh, monarchy of trade. How opportunistic uh, was this discourse, and how how should we read it? Should we take it as a a type of discourse which was meant to be take, take, taken seriously, or is it just particularly opportunistic and uh, therefore uh, very contextualized in terms of how one should read it?
0: There's there's no doubt that that these arguments can be and were used opportunistically. Um, the the at, at the same time um it if they didn't um if if they didn't if these threats didn't have a degree of credibility they would have been difficult to deploy um, politically in the way that they were so for example um the patriot Whigs in the 1730s um deploy a discourse of uh, of fear that that of a rising French universal monarchy of trade um, as a way to justify the war against Spain in 1739, uh, a war which is intended to win trading enclaves for Britain in the Caribbean, which will be used to penetrate the commerce of Spanish America and redress, supposedly redress the commercial balance um, with France, which has been progressing in patriot Whig views very, very quickly uh, in the previous two decades. That discourse is clearly used Partly as an opportunistic way to uh, wrong-foot Walpole, um, to force Walpole into a, wall, into a war he doesn't uh, he doesn't want, and eventually to push him out of government altogether. So there's a clear opportunistic usage, um, a, a, as you would expect, I, I think, in a political system uh, where there are competing factions. Um, but I I don't think it is I I don't think that those fears could have been deployed politically in a successful way if they didn't resonate. Um, The fact was that um, French commerce was growing very quickly in the 1720s and 1730s, much faster than Britain's. Um, We see this particularly in Saint-Domingue, the the most valuable um, of the French uh, sugar islands, where um, plantation agriculture was expanding very quickly in the 1720s and 30s. uh, And where Britain in this period... um, uh, essentially, became uncompetitive in European markets uh, in the in the sugar reexport business. So, there the, you know there, there 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 were realities there that uh, patriot Whigs could could pick up on. I I think in the French case, it's much more difficult to argue that um, that we're dealing with an opportunistic discourse. Um, the 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 French uh, from the late Stages of the War of Austrian Succession, that's 1741 to 1748, um, are becoming quite convinced that um, their principal strategic rival is Britain and that the, re- the reason why Britain is their principal strategic rival is because of Britain's um, lead uh, in, in commerce and colonies. Uh, and so their focus begins to shift from the long standing rivalry uh, against the Habsburgs in Central Europe towards a more Atlantic um, orientation. And we see this very clearly uh, in the late 1740s. And I think it's extremely difficult to understand uh, the French embrace of the Austrian alliance um, in 1756, except as a strategy, bungled and and misfiring to be sure, uh, but except as a strategy to... um, Shut down the conflict in Central Europe so that France can uh, face to the Atlantic and to North America uh, and and deal with Britain as its principal rival. So I, I don't I I think it's it's more difficult to make the case for an opportunistic uh, usage of that discourse. I think I think this this um, concern about a British universal monarchy of trade is uh, central to understanding that French strategic reorientation uh, in the middle of the century and central to understanding. Um, French geostrategy, you know, down to the down to the 1780s.
1: Uh, would it be correct to say that, unlike Bailey Stone, you do not regard the French monarchy after 1715 as being uh, aggressive in its foreign policy, but rather, than conversely, mostly defensive uh, oriented? Uh, absolutely correct. Um,
0: I, I I admire Bailey Stone's book. Um, I think there's uh, there's an enormous amount of, of uh, valuable insight there, but that's the that's the one assumption he makes that I just I completely reject. Um, he sees the, the, the foreign policy of Louis the Fifteenth and Louis the essentially as an extension of, a, of Louis the earlier, more bellicose, um, uh, more, more more expansionist um, uh, policies and perspectives. Uh, I, the way you characterize it is exactly right. France is on a defensive footing um, after 1713, pro- probably earlier than that, and remains on that defensive footing, you know, down to down to the French Revolution. Um, the, the 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 French, more than the British, in this period, um, are creative and um, innovative in strategies to. Transform the nature of international competition, and that's because they're they're losing under the rules of the game as established uh, in the early decades of the 18th century. Um, They they uh, are having a great deal of trouble preserving a balance of power uh, under the ground rules of let's call it the Utrecht order, and so they are um, they they. more than the British are pushing to transform that order um, and they come closest to doing so uh, in the 1780s at a moment of British weakness and vulnerability because it's precisely at moments like that that Britain is um, more open to the prospect of um, of renegotiating the relationship with the long-standing rival
1: Why did John Law's attempted financial revolution fail? Um
0: Law's financial revolution is an effort to introduce the kinds of financial institutions in France uh, that um, had been established in Britain from the 1690s, um, a, a national bank um, and um, a debt consolidation operation to lower the interest on uh, on the French debt and to ter- turn some of it into equity and trading companies. Um, it, it failed because it's um, because it, it was over ambitious. Uh, I mean, instead of closely following the the, um, the precedent of the South Sea Company, Robert Harley's South Sea Company, which was established in 1711 uh, to consolidate the unfunded uh, British public debt, instead of following that model closely, law goes for something far more grandiose. Um, he seeks to consolidate the the entire French public debt. Um, he seeks to inter, uh, to transform the annuities um, into uh, capital in his in his Compagnie des Indes. So I, I think overreaching is part of the problem. I think part of the problem is that uh, naturally uh, he made um, very powerful enemies in his efforts to uh, bring about this financial revolution in France. He, he intended to do away with um, the old system. Of uh, of financiers who funded the French monarchy and um, that powerful class, uh, which stood to lose, uh, pushed back and and um, you know succeeded in uh, undermining his position. He's he's also under pressure from um, from Britain's South Sea Company, um, which in competition with laws. Uh, Great debt consolidation scheme in 1719, 1720 sets up its own debt consolidation scheme, which becomes the South Sea Bubble. Um, the, the 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 development of new speculative opportunities in London in 1720 draws a great deal of international and indeed French capital out of Paris uh, at, at a moment when law you know really needs all that capital to to stay in his system. Uh, and this tends, uh, I think, to destabilize his system. But it's I, it's not, I think, the fundamental factor. Um, the, the fundamental factor is, I think, that laws, um, laws, uh, new financial arrangements were undertaken on a scale and a level of ambition which was unrealistic, and left him very vulnerable. Um, so, I, I I think had he ha, had he stuck with um, the kinds of institutions he had established by 1717, so a a a national bank with a modest issue of paper currency, and a um, uh, the the company of the West, the company of which was intended to uh, intended to consolidate part of the unfunded debt. Um, at that, up to that point, his innovations had been very successful, and I think uh, would probably have become permanent um, had he not uh, taken the the vast and rash step in 1719. Of seeking to consolidate the entire public debt uh, as uh, as equity in in his uh, company of the Indies.
1: Why do the Anglo-French détente of the 1730s break down?
0: Um, it it broke down fundamentally because uh, in a system that is predicated on a commercial uh, balance of power or a, a balance of commercial wealth, the the peaceful development of one side, if it's perceived to be disproportionate to the other, becomes um, a threat to the security uh, of the rival state. So um, France uh, develops commercially and colonially very quickly in the 1720s and 1730s. Um, This becomes a source of great anxiety to uh, English patriot Whigs who are the principal opposition to Walpole in the House of Commons. Um, and they um, they successfully use uh, a, a discourse of French threat um, uh, to force Walpole into a war with Spain in 1739 and eventually to oust um, Walpole from, from power. So I, and I think the, the, the bigger um, insight here is that in a in an international order that is organized on capitalist lines, uh, in which capitalist competition is fundamental to the balance of power, um, peace can be difficult to sustain uh, it, when it produces uneven economic development, uh, which it was in the 1720s and 1730s, with France growing much faster than Britain, and um, uh, the, the, visibly uh, pulling even with Britain in commercial and colonial terms in ways that um, disturbed the Patriot Whigs and, uh, and that they were able to make political capital out of.
1: Uh, you noted the book that after 1739, there was no return to what you characterized as the Pax wolpoliana. Why was that?
0: um by the end of the War of Austrian Succession, um, f- French policymakers had become convinced that um, that Britain had acquired a lead that threatened to be permanent um, by through its dominance over North America. And that it that it would use that dominance in North America to extend its control eventually over the colonies of the Bourbon powers uh, in America in the Americas also the French and Spanish colonies. So uh, in that circumstance there was a strong drive to build up the French navy. Um, so th- th- this made a return to the um, political, economic, and strategic basis of the of the the detente or peace between France and Britain of the late 1720s and 1730s. It made it impossible because that earlier um, detente was based in part on French appeasement of Britain, um, a French commitment to keep its navy small and, un- and underfunded um, with the hope that by uh, not threatening Britain's fundamental security interests, um, Britain and France could remain at peace. And France could peacefully grow its way uh, to uh, to balance with its British rival. That that kind of arrangement um, it was was not possible from the end of the 1740s because the French had come to the conclusion that having a small underfunded navy uh, was actually an encouragement to British aggression in the late 1730s, and that only by having a navy uh, that um, could protect French commerce and colonies would Britain be deterred um, from. Uh, using its power to uh, using its power in the Americas to try to absorb the French and, col- and Spanish colonies in the long run, giving it a permanent lead uh, in in global commerce. So, so the, the the fundamental basis for the what I called the Pax Ulpuliana, um had disappeared by the end of the 1740s.
1: What was uh, Chouassu's uh, strategy in the realm of colonies post 1763? 1763. And why did he decide to give up the, the uh, to the British and the Spanish, France's possessions in North America?
0: Um, Choiseul had come to the conclusion that um, that Canada uh, or other large uh, territorial colonies were, weren't worth the trouble of keeping. Um, he it was clear that that these were strategic colonies, that is, colonies that um, were unlikely ever to generate the revenues that would cover their own costs. Um, They were losing propositions in commercial terms. Um, They also tended to draw France, as they had in 1754 and 1755, to draw France into uh, boundary disputes with the British um, that that led to conflict. Um, So uh, Choiseul more or less cheerfully relinquished Canada. To the British, uh, and that that was a decision that had been made by 1761, uh, and and also um, uh, as compensation to a, to France's Spanish ally, also um, passed the Louisiana territory uh, to to Spain. Um, so Fr- France under Choiseul was essentially retreating from the business of um, of extensive territorial empire in favor of a, uh, a territorially tiny but commercially vibrant and and lean empire that would um, pay its own protection costs. Um, what Choiseul envisioned was um, islands or enclaves uh, which would be commercially vibrant, uh, which would uh, generate revenues that could be taxed, generate re-exports that could be marketed in Europe um, and that would be protected. By um, by strategic enclaves um, uh, like say Saint Pierre and Miquelon of Newfoundland or the um, the new colony of, of Guyana, which he projected disastrously in 1763. Um, w- one interesting side of this is that um, Choiseul envisioned uh, uh, re-establishing French commerce in India uh, under the protection of Indian states, um, w- what he hoped to bring about eventually, uh, but it would be necessary to break the power of the East India company before this would be possible. What he hoped is that instead of projecting a territorial French empire in, in, in India, which had been, um, tried uh, in the early 1750s, uh, disastrously, that, um, France would maintain um, just a skeletal uh, political military presence in India and that French commerce would be protected there by a friendly league of Indian rulers um, who would um, protect and advantage French commerce in return for uh, French help in breaking the power of the East India Company. So it's a vision of an expansive French trade abroad which doesn't depend on the existence of a French empire. Um, is, uh, French trade is to be protected by someone else's empire, effectively. And Choiseul has a similar vision for French trade in Spanish America, uh, which he hopes will be protected by Spain as part of the family compact um, between, the, between the two countries. Um, it, ne- neither of these um, schemes actually pans out uh, in, in the end, um, but here we're talking about Choiseul's, Choiseul's larger vision which is a vision of re- remaking empire in the 1760s uh, in a way that's going to reduce its protection
1: costs and increase its commercial return. How does the free port concept, as introduced in the Rockingham administration in the late 1760s, fit into your narrative?
0: I, I see the Rockingham vision of free ports, establishing free ports in the Caribbean, as a response to and rejection of um, William Pitt's imperialism uh, during the Seven Years War um, Pitt's most radical followers uh, had had talked of um, conquering the French and Spanish colonies um, uh, and of absorbing them into the British Empire um, this this was uh, I mean an, an impractical prospect uh, but also one that would have been and was, in fact, during the Seven Years' War, hideously expensive. Um, The the Rockingham position was that the commercial benefit of the French and and Spanish colonies might be uh, peacefully uh, drawn into British commercial circuits by opening a free trade between uh, Britain and the French and Spanish colonies through these free ports in the Caribbean, in the 1760s, so they, they they explicitly talk about this as uh, as a as a kind of peaceful conquest, or as an absorption of the French and Spanish colonies without actually uh, conquering them or extending British sovereignty over them, which would have been enormously costly. Again, the idea is that you want a you want an empire uh, where the costs of sovereignty, administration, and protection. Uh, aren't going to outweigh the the commercial advantage of the empire, um, uh, and, and free ports are, are are going to serve this function. Um, that, that this is, I think, the, the fundamental strategic design behind them.
1: Why did the Earl of Shelburne become an advocate of free trade with post-colonial America?
0: Well, the the the, the standard story uh, about. Why he did, why Shelburne became a free trader is that he fell under the influence of uh, liberal enlightenment uh, political economists, um, Adam Smith or Josiah Tucker in Britain, uh, or especially the Abbe André Morley uh, in France, whom Shelburne had met met on a trip to Paris. They struck up a friendship. Morley had come back and and visited uh, Shelburne subsequently, and they maintained a, a correspondence thereafter. And Shelburne, years later, uh, attributed his credited morley with, with turning him into a free trader. And historians have tended to take this at face value. Um, I, I think this is nonsense. Um, if you look at Shelburne's statements as, as late as 1778, when he thought it was still possible to keep uh, America as part of a commercial union with Great Britain, uh, he he. he he, he was he was completely wedded at that point still to the Navigation Laws. Um, he, he didn't believe that uh, he, he said that basically Britain would not be able to maintain its position as a great power um, without um, without keeping commercial control over America. W- what changes Shelburne's mind and what turns him into a free trader is the is the the, the definitive loss of America. Uh, it's it it is facing into the prospect of dealing with an independent America. At that point, he's he's asking the question, what is our best strategy to maintain British um, commercial uh, dominance over American markets? Um, And it's at that point that he, and not just he, but many other Britons embrace free trade. And Shelburne pushes for a a free trade treaty with America at at the end of the American War. That would have effectively restored um, the commercial links with America, as if it was not an independent state, as if it were still a part of the of the British Empire. Um, you know, even to the point of of uh, of of, uh, of giving um, you know subsidies to uh, to to various uh, imports from America and allowing full free trade between uh, between America and the British colonies in the Caribbean. Um, so it, it is it is the it is the transformed geopolitical conjuncture that turns Shelburne into a free trader, not uh, some supposed influence of uh, Enlightenment ideas on uh, on him. And there's a there's a larger there's a larger issue here. Uh, one of the things I take issue with in the book is the idea that that um, is this idea of influence, uh, the idea that um, merely by being exposed to enlightenment ideas that 18th century officials were, you know, had, had their, their views transformed. I, I think we need to see the relationship between officials and the producers of ideas in a, in a, in a different framework. Um, it, it, it is, it is, it is true that officials like Shelburne are very well aware of the work of people like Adam Smith and Tucker um, Smith is frequently consulted by government uh, in the 1760s and 1770s. Shelburne consults Smith on several occasions, and other enlightened political economists. Well, what is it that's going on here? Um, the, 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 the politicians, the officials, um, are are choosing selectively uh, ideas from the corpus of these uh, Enlightenment works, and integrating them into their into their own thinking to solve practical political problems and leaving behind much of the inf- intellectual infrastructure uh, of, of, these, of these ideas. So I, I think we need to understand, um, I, I don't want to argue that, that um, Smith or Hume in Britain or the physiocrats in France were unimportant in the political economic debates of the late 18th, of the late eighteenth century, they they were important, but they their their insights were integrated quite selectively by officials to meet problems that were part of the management of competition between commercial states. Um, what, what we what we shouldn't uh, the, the, the idea that I think you know doesn't work uh, for understanding what's going on here. Is that in some uh, root and branch sense um, officials are taking over uh, Enlightenment ideas, and that, that is the fundamental reason why, for example, they embrace free trade in the 1780s? Um, it, it isn't, and I think one can show with textual evidence very clearly that this isn't the case.
1: So it would be correct to say that uh, you are not an inherent of what may what one may characterize, for lack of a better expression, as vulgar idealism.
0: Uh, That is correct. Um, I am deeply skeptical that ideas on their own ever change the world. Uh, um, I do think there is a truly fundamental, and truly interesting problem of historical interpretation in trying to figure out what the relationship is between the world of ideas and the world of politics. so if I reject on the one hand um, a vulgar idealism, I reject on the other hand a vision of the world of politics or geopolitics where ideas have no place, where um, somehow politicians simply muddle through from one pragmatic challenge to another, without without an idea in their heads, um, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I think it's based on a it's based on a a, a a tendency to see the the world of ideas as or, or to it's a, a tendency to, to to equate ideas with philosophy or with you know fully fleshed out intellectual systems. Um, in fact we all all politicians and 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 all of us in our everyday lives are using ideas all the time they they they're not necessarily you know fully fully fleshed out coherent intellectual systems they they are heuristics they're rules of thumb um, they are uh, they are bodies of ideas that we fall back on for solutions to pragmatic problems um, the politicians are in this situation and they are drawing constantly, it seems to me, from the world of more formal ideas, uh, looking for, um, you know, looking for whatever might be helpful to meet the the latest challenge. This is particularly obvious in the 18th century because there's no sharp separation between these between these worlds. Um, officials and men of letters, you know, often meet uh, in the same social circles. Uh, officials themselves engage in more formal intellectual productions. Think of William Eden's letters to the Earl of Carlisle, for example, and many other uh, British and French officials across the 18th century um, put their ideas into print. And many of them employ in their circle um, men of letters who are seen as, uh, uh, you know, p- people who have something interesting to say about the world. I mean, Adam Smith is a good example. Um, Adam Smith is repeatedly consulted by government uh, from the early 1760s, particularly in the 1770s uh, by the North administration and he's he's uh, referred to repeatedly uh, in the 1780s by people like William Eden um, who are trying to uh, envision uh, what a um, what a new international order might look like based on uh, freer trade, based on less antagonism between France and Britain, uh, etc. So uh, I think there's a really interesting and important story to be told here about the relationship between ideas and politics, and that's one of the things the book really tries to do.
1: So it would be correct to say that uh, you're, for lack of expression, uncomfortable with the traditional diplomatic history narrative of this period.
0: I, I, I am. Um, I... I, I uh, there's on, on the one hand, I find so much to admire in tra- in traditional diplomatic history. Um, enormous erudition, a command of many languages, um, archival uh, mastery that's enviable. Um, I, I think that a traditional diplomatic history. I'm not sure how much traditional diplomatic history there is anymore, but um, but that. Uh, a traditional diplomatic history was somewhat siloed, um, as many fields of history are from one another. And what I've, part of what I've tried to do in the book, is to, um, is to move beyond that by thinking about the relationship between three bodies of scholarship that have evolved largely separately. One is the the, uh, the history of foreign policy and international relations, uh, a diplomatic history, international history if you will. Another is the history of fiscal and military states, um, uh, the, the, the history of how international competition was funded. And the third is the history of political economy uh, which has mostly evolved as an intellectual history. Um, but. Um, where I think we can ask new questions and discover new and interesting things by bringing those ideas into much closer uh, conversation with the preoccupations of the officials who are actually managing competition between commercial states in this period. So, yes, there's a, there, there's a I have a I have a dissatisfaction about the way that um, the this siloing of historiographies of scholarly traditions. <clears throat> Can um, prevent us from seeing uh, certain interesting and important things that emerge when we, <clears throat> excuse me, when we bring them into um, into conversation.
1: If you if you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: The the fundamental insight of the book, I think, it's the largest insight, is that while we know that an emergent capitalism an emergent um, uh, merchant capitalism produced a great deal of conflict uh, in this period between states I, I don't dispute that for a moment um, that same emergent capitalism was a force uh, f- push pr- creating pressures to change the character of international competition and to um Build a, a, a more peaceful, more stable uh, international order. I, I think that that's an insight that we have. A, we have a lot of attention to the first insight that that this emergent capitalism created conflict, and very little, hardly any, to the to, to that second insight. And I think I think it's an important. I think it's an especially important insight because it helps us to understand. Um, the longer trajectory of um, geopolitical history in a in a capitalist world order um, it helps us to understand uh, why we get a more pacific international order after 1815 between 1815 and, and 1913 um, than we ha- than we had in the 18th century, and it helps us to understand the forces which helped to produce. Um, the re- the relatively peaceful um, post 1945 world that uh, we have profited from and that capitalism has enormously profited from over the last uh, over the last 75 years so the insight that um, that that capitalism is a spur not only to conflict but also a spur to uh, initiatives to um, to end conflict over trade and investment among commercial states. Um, that, that's, I think, the fundamental takeaway from the book.
1: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Chauvelin, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor, very much for speaking with us. Thank you. My pleasure.